The first day was like really overwhelming. Excitement. Can't remember. <laughs> it was amazing. I loved it. A new life was waiting for me, basically. Mostly frantic. Anxiety inducing. It was torturous. Oh, it was a mess. Like it was, it was such a disaster. I haven't even started paying off my student loans. Don't know if you're going to be able to eat next semester. You're at the mercy of other people. Sorry, I'm just so jaded and cynical. Well, one day you think you can conquer the world and the other days you're not worth it. This is Just As It Sounds, featuring academics telling their stories just as they sound. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to the fifth episode. Hi, Bishra. How was your weekend? Hello, Nilifar. Well, I spent my weekend by mostly grading and editing this episode. Um, I'm not going to ask how was yours because you were with me the whole time. That is correct. So... Let's start this episode. We would like to start by giving you a small warning. For this episode, there was just so much to cover. We were just unable to fit everything. So we decided to divide it in two episodes. In this episode, we ask this question, is academic coaching the solution? Uh, When we first decided to start this podcast, academic coaching was one of the themes that we wanted to discuss. Of course, as being new in the podcast world, we were sharing our podcast idea and themes with a lot of friends. And one of our close friends, who is much more active than us on Twitter, shared with us the controversy between the main academic coach, Karen Kalski, who is the author of the book, uh, The Professor is In, and a number of individuals from academia. For those of you who are not familiar with what we are talking about, here are two versions of what had happened. And my original tweet was fairly graceless. I was, I was just taking a little bit of a shot in the dark because I was pretty annoyed to see um, the sort of head career coach trying to adapt to the new reality of the job market by selling something that I never thought was very realistic, which is a clear and concise path to an academic job, which I don't believe exists. You know, it's mostly luck. Uh, and connections that get you an academic job, not, you know, how you format your cover letter. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in this case, uh, I criticized Kelsky for her shift towards alt-ac um, uh, job coaching. And she came at me pretty hard. Um, I think she's taken this hard line against people calling her a grifter, which is a word I used in my tweet, um, where I think that, you know, a lot of what she does specifically is profit off of the desperation of academics looking to, looking for anything that would give them a magical edge in a job market that's fundamentally not built on edges. It's built on inherent characteristics that you brought with you to graduate school and out of grad school, who your advisor is, what's your educational background, what topic are you working on? Mm-hmm. Things that Kelsky doesn't touch, but she focuses mainly on the structural stuff that um, claims to be about what the applicant can control. And therefore I think puts too much onus on the applicant for their own failure to get a job, that's kind of her, her ethos, I think, is to blame you um, and to make it seem like you are in some way, shape or form the cause of your own failure. Um, and, and personally, I find that to be not unlike what a lot of um, multi-level marketing schemes do. They make it about you and your inability to succeed, even though the system is fundamentally rigged against you. So I was going to ignore it. Um, mm-hmm. I am a junior faculty Um, And I'm also a woman of color who is on the internet. So um, I tend to pick my battles strategically. And what so offended me about the way she talks about 
this um, about this industry is the fact that she talks about it like an industry. Mm-hmm. What I was really trying to say in my tweets is that what teachers do goes beyond mere categories that capitalism can understand. So as this has turned out to be a pretty sensitive topic, we would like to let you know that we are actually not interested in Karen Kelsky individually, um, but because she's sort of a pioneer and a predominant figure in this industry, you may hear her name in this episode quite often. Our goal is not to criticize her personally, but we would like to consider what she and other academic coaches do as a business and as an industry in relation to the current situation of the academy. For today's episode, we have talked to three people who are in different stages of their careers. For those of you who listened to one of our previous episodes, you know that we usually interview one person on a particular topic. In this episode, we are trying something new. Um, We compiled the views and critiques of our guests and included our own perspective. So we will discuss academic coaching in detail using excerpts from all the interviews. First, we would like to introduce these three brilliant academics who made this episode possible with their own words. Here it goes. This is Anne. Um, So my name is uh, M. Adriel Tong. I am an assistant professor of New Testament and Judaic Studies at the Interdenominational Theological Center, which is an HBCU seminary. This is Craig. Um, My name is Craig Gallagher. Um, I am a a lecturer of history at uh, New England College and also at St. Anselm College. I'm an adjunct professor at two institutions here in New Hampshire. Uh, mostly, I teach American and world history. Uh, I got a PhD from Boston College in early American history in 2017. Um, and s- since then, I've been teaching um, first at my alma mater at BC. Uh, and then uh, last year, I moved up to New Hampshire, and I'm teaching at a couple of campuses um, this past year. And finally, this is Matt. Okay, so my name is Dr. Matt Luckett. I have a PhD in history from UCLA. I finished in 2014. Uh, After that, I did a lot of adjunct work. I spent a year with a teaching fellowship through UCLA. And since 2016, I have actually been an academic coordinator for the Humanities External Program at California State University to make it build. We would like to start with a short job description for academic coaching and tell you what they do. Uh, It can sound like a commercial, but please bear with us. In a nutshell, academic job uh, coaches provide a variety of services to help you build your academic career. As you know, securing a 10-year track job is a long and tedious process with a lot of different stages. Uh, Academic coaches who often themselves were academics target each of these stages with different requirements. They can help you to prepare your job application material, your course proposal, or your postdoc materials. They can review your job talk and assist you with uh, job offer negotiations. So like what kind of application materials are we talking about here? Um, They edit and work on things like teaching statements, uh, cover letters, research statements, or your CV. Because these documents need to be really short, clear, and concise, applicants spend a lot of time on preparing them. 
Uh, also, more recently, some academic coaches started to give services to those who want to pursue jobs outside of academia, known as ALT-AC. This was a word that uh, I haven't heard actually before. So they help applicants polish and put forward their academic skills and qualifications so that they can look compatible with non-academic jobs. Okay, so let's first start off with talking about the birth of academic coaching as a business model. So when did it start? Well, uh, my observation about the academic career coaching market is it was a product of the financial crisis of 2008. And I think the... I think the 2008 crisis, especially in higher education, was the first time that a lot of tenured professors and departments had to confront the reality that their graduate students were unlikely to get academic jobs as a result of their PhD programs. And I think that's true across what we think of as the liberal arts, maybe less so for science and engineering and mathematics. It was definitely before I started my PhD program. <laughs> um, I would say probably 2008, um, which is like sort of the turning point after which millennials as an entire generation would never recover. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, what that meant was the undermining of many institutions. So not just, um, for example, uh, there's a great, piece in The Atlantic by Brett Devereaux, um, where he talks about how state universities have gotten into these situations because of declining state funding. And so after the 2008 crash, like, we haven't been able to recover any of that funding that we usually have gotten. Um, And so things are just kind of getting worse and worse until we have really what's going to have to be a societal shift. That definitely makes sense in a global economic recession that hits academia pretty hard. Um, As a result, the funding the schools lost after the 2008 crash meant austerity policies imposed upon departments, specifically humanities and social sciences. And what that means is shrinking the number of available tenure-track positions and a simultaneous increase in precarious temporary part-time teaching jobs. Um, Furthermore, the economic recession pushed more people to pursue higher education because of high unemployment rate or insecure job opportunities. So overall, there have been more people getting graduate degrees while there are less and less academic job openings. So in this competitive world, we see the increase of professionalization of academics. And what does this mean? Can I answer this question? Yes, go on it. I don't know. Maybe you ask this as a rhetorical question, but you know, I cannot help myself. So it means that it is not enough to be a brilliant researcher and a good teacher, but it is about what you do with your research, how you present yourself and your research in a professional manner. That's why I don't think that I will get a job because you know how brilliant I am, but I just don't know how to be modest about this. <laughs> You have to have a set of qualifications and you have to be able to sell them. But most of the schools were not ready for this type of transition and they did not have enough services to help students with professionalization, which created this high demand in this world. And I think that there was a vacuum for career counseling, just in general, for PhDs, um, that I think 
Karen Kelsky in The Professor's Inn was the first really to fill um, and to sort of create a discourse around what I call professionalization, how you professionalize yourself in the pursuit of increasingly vanishing academic jobs. But then I have a question. Isn't it good that someone is helping grad students to adapt to the new reality of the academic job market? For sure. All of our guests emphasize certain positive aspects of academic coaching as possibly improving the chances of some students or helping them in other ways. One thing that Craig mentioned was how this discourse helped academics to redefine their relationship with their PhD degree. And so one of the things that I think Karen Kelsky especially, but the broader career coaching industry in general, uh, did achieve was to normalize the idea that Um, graduate students have to approach the academic job market um, as adults and as people looking to become colleagues of the people they're interviewing with, which I think was good and important because it implied that, you know, this was a career and it was a job and it's something you should treat like a job instead of a vocation and something that you, you're, you're pursuing a dream, partly because I personally think academics are really bad at valuing their own labor. And so framing things as labor is good All three of our guests for today emphasize that they come from schools and departments with great resources. They all had supportive and helpful advisors and committee members. They worked with junior faculty who taught them the nitty gritty of the job market. Matt and Craig even mentioned that in their schools, which are respectively UCLA and Boston College, there was a placement coordinator whose sole job was to work with grad students and help them navigate the job market. In that regard, most of the PhDs are not lucky enough to have these resources. Some students do not have supportive advisors. So academic coaches might also compensate damages of having an absentee or abusive advisor. What is not the grift part is the actual recognition that there are a lot of bad advisors out there. There are a lot of advisors who are absent, They're abusive. They don't care about their students. I know that um, I have an open policy where I'm very willing to advise people, and I'm often shocked to hear about simply the lack of care that they were given by their advisor. I mean, it's it's so heartbreaking to me. So academic coaches sound like a great opportunity to have, uh, especially for the PhD students who either do not go to, you know, Ivy League schools or, you know, um, some universities with um, resources. Uh, and it is good because these PhD students could access this essential knowledge and practice by paying for the service and working with them. Uh, in a way, academic coaches can be a way of leveling the playing field by provo- providing help to students with significantly fewer resources. However, look at us, we cannot even afford an academic coach for those who would like to donate us some money so that we can save our future, you are more than welcome. Uh, one final point to make is that with the rise of academic coaches who are ne- no, now more leaned towards finding alternative academic jobs, For instance, um, it can be working at a non-governmental organization or a media company. Um, this helped to normalize the fact that it is okay not to continue to be an academic despite your degree and channel your skills and qualifications into a new direction. 
then why are people so critical of academic coaching? Why was there such a big controversy around this issue if it's helpful and positive for a lot of people? Uh, I think one major thing it is uh, that um, it is very expensive to hire an academic coach. And for so much money also, yeah. Um, one of the I know, I saw was- some of the, because I didn't know how much it was. So I was like, oh, it's like, it's probably like, you know, like $40 or something. And it's, like, it's like so much more money. <laughs> and I was like, I remember I saw um, one academic coach, it was like $120 per hour. But if you were like disadvantaged or something like a minority, you could get 20% off. And I was like, that's still like $120. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, how, how does anybody afford this? Our other guest, Matt, worked with an academic coach to have his cover letter edited. He told us that he paid $280 in total and he had two exchanging two exchanges with the academic coach. In the first round of feedback, the academic coach told him what's wrong with his letter and to read some chapters from her book. In the second feedback, Matt received a couple of general feedback like, you're still doing this and that. He says, to get a bigger return, you need to spend more money. And if you have a limited budget, then you have to pick which service you would like to get. And you have to really strategize how to get the most out of your academic coach. You know, I was able to sit down with the, the counselor at UCLA, you know, really talk through stuff, and she had an open policy. And so those things really made a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas I think with the academic coaching, you have to know at the forefront exactly what you want to get out of it, because most people aren't made of money. So you have to really strategize, like, what job am I going to apply for? And the thing is, like, on the one hand, the assumption is, and in fairness to the academic coach, what they tried to do was, you know, we're going to train you how to write a cover letter and how to, you know, optimize your CV and things like that. And that's great. But on the other hand, you know, you're only sending one document that this person's going to lay eyes on. And so if you're applying for five, 10, 15 jobs, only one of those positions is going to be, you know, they're going to lay eyes upon those that, that job back. So you're still going to have to do a lot of writing that falls outside of the purview. So you have to really kind of figure out, like, you know, how am I going to maximize the benefit uh, of this academic coach? And so, and like I said, you know, most people don't have $500, dollars They can't just put this person on retainer. I assume there are a lot of PhDs who work with a limited number of academic coaches. And don't you think there's a risk that? cover letters or other documents of candidates uh, look like each other's? That's a great question. This was actually one of the important and very simple points that all of our guests made. Craig, for instance, drew our attention to the fact that nowadays the faculty sitting on the job research committees can easily distinguish those applicants who follow the professor is in model. In the conversation that I ended up having on Twitter with everybody after speaking and interacting with Karen Kalski, multiple, uh, two, two particular, but a couple implied this, but two professors at institutions that have recently run job searches told me that they got a raft of applications that were very similar to each other and all appeared to be based very strictly on the professor as in model. 
I guess it is open to debate to what extent strictly following one model in our applications is useful. Maybe the methods academic coaches are proposing that we should apply in our application packages do not necessarily match with what the departments are looking for. And Anne is a great example. I mean, I know that the reason I got the job that I did was because they were interested in who I was as a person. In fact, that was the very first question they asked me in my interview. And so when you just think of uh, applying the job market or applying for PhD applications or any of the things that academic coaching does only as, again, this business plan or this set of branding principles, I fear that you lose exactly the thing that schools are most looking for, which is who is this person? And what are they going to bring to us that nobody else will? In relationship to the fact of losing your own voice, I just remembered that we had a workshop in our department. Uh, I think it was last year. And we used an excerpt from the book uh, The Professor Is In. I remember very vividly that the author would recommend women to prevent using certain verbs such as I think, I try, I want to. And her reasoning was that women should use a more affirmative language. However, this made me think that not everybody uses the verb of I think because of lack of self-confidence. So not only we lose our own voice, but also this advice for the sake of professionalization puts an extra pressure on certain groups such as women, immigrants, and you feel like you have to change who you are and perform to fit in this monolithic academic profile. Craig makes a great point. And that to me is the fundamental objection. That's where I think that the professor is in and the models like that are pretty predatory is that they're preying on a kind of lack of self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, and just for the record, um, one of my personal critiques of Karen Kelsky's model is, as you just suggested, there's a kind of harsh, tough love kind of approach to it, which I think often manifests uh, as rather sexist. Like a lot of what she criticizes women for, she doesn't criticize men for. Like I would read the book and be told, you know, men can get away with slouching. She would say things like this, you know, um, or, or at least that may be a blog post, but, you know, men have to dress a certain way, but women, there's much more of a microscope to put upon you, right? Which, of course, is true, but is uh, an attempt to frame the victim of higher standards as responsible for meeting them instead of challenging the fact that our system, our academic job market system, places an undue burden on women, on minorities, on immigrants, right? Like one of the things that I most took away from a lot of my academic job market experiences was I had to work on my accent. And try to like flatten it out and be a little oh, bit, which really? I do, which I do now, right? But I mean, I'm an English speaker natively, but if you've ever been to Scotland, you know that we don't speak English like most Americans do. And so things like that, right? And, and the reality is like that tough love mentality is so deleterious to the experience of graduate school and the people who come through it. Mm-hmm. You know, you just come out of it really not. And I, I again, I can't speak from experience because I was lucky to not have this. But just looking from the outside, I just think that it's just so harmful. And structuring it that way is all about blaming the job market candidate, the graduate student, for their own failures. And it's never about addressing the possibility that the system has set them up to fail. Tough love, 
is something that some of us can be familiar with already because some advisors believe in the power of this too. However, as Matt suggests, do we need more tough love after years of grad school and during the job application process? But you know, psychologically, when you're in the job market, and I can't speak for everybody, but I can speak for myself and you know, a lot of my friends. When you're on the job market, you are very, um, I guess, sensitive to the things that you are doing wrong. And so when an academic coach sends you this list of things that you have to do in order for them to provide you with a service, you're going to internalize those things and think, well, I hope I didn't disappoint this person or oh, I hope I did enough work for this person to make them happy. I mean, and that's not really a healthy, you know, uh, attitude to have about it. But you know, psychologically, when you're facing the odds of the modern-day academic job market, it's really easy to kind of internalize the, the many negative factors that play into that. And if there is a failure on the academic, you know, coaching side of things, you're going to assume that that's you. Another relevant question to ask regarding this tough love approach is to what extent it is helpful? M expresses this point very clearly. So one other thing that I wanted to say about the controversy with Karen Kelsky is that, as I mentioned, um, one of the things that I think this industry does do is make up for absentee or abusive advisors. But the problem I have with her is the question of whether she's better than an abusive advisor. (laughs) I mean, she basically walked into um, this uh, seminar and said, if you don't have at least one article in a top peer-reviewed journal, don't even bother. And I was like, okay, like what, what was that for? What did that do? Did that build anybody up? No. It just made people feel terrible. Um, And people who did have, uh, and for people who did have uh, articles or maybe even multiple articles in top journals, it also gives them a very false sense of security. Um, In fact, a person who was in that room with me had multiple uh, top journal articles, and he's still on the market while I have a tenure track job. Today, we focused on what academic coaches do, what are the positive sides of academic coaching, and how it looks like on an individual level from the perspective of the applicants. Next week, we are going to talk about whether it works. In other words, despite these problems that it presents for applicants, is academic coaching the solution for those who are looking for tenure track jobs? Let's say that we can afford hiring a coach. We are willing to follow their advice, even if it's harmful to our psychological well-being, and we are okay with their tough love approach. Are we going to get a job at the end of this process? Let's find out next week. Thank you for listening to Just As It Sounds. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have any questions or ideas for the show, please email us at contactjustasitsounds at gmail.com.